following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. This morning, as we turn our gaze to the Word of God, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Proverbs and chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. I want to open up our time in the Word by reading verses 20 through 27 this morning. I believe this is now the fifth sermon in our series of studies entitled, Keeping the Heart which is based on Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. This is part two of a few messages that I'll be giving on what I am calling the special seasons of life that demand greater diligence in keeping our hearts. And so, as always, it's with a genuine sense of gratitude and privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-arousing, heart-refreshing, mind-renewing words of the true and living God. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. I'll be reading this morning from the Legacy Standard Bible. My son, pay attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them deviate from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all his flesh. Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a perverse mouth, and put devious lips far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead, and even let your eyelids be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the track of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Grace Community Church, these are the words of the true and living God. Thanks be to God. May God revive us according to his word this morning. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for out of it, For from it, proceeding out of it, are the springs of life, the issues of life. One translation says, guard your heart with everything you have because everything you do comes from your heart. One of the most helpful practices in reading the Bible, whether it's an entire book, an entire chapter, a particular paragraph, or a single verse is to ask the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the text. Well, today, as last week, we are asking the question, when are we to keep our hearts with all vigilance? As I stated last week, on the one hand, the answer is 
at all times. However, because life is a journey filled with a variety of different seasons, we are confronted with different experiences. And because of that, it's crucial, it is critical that we, as the people of God, take the time to identify and consider the different seasons and situations that we face because of what our hearts are faced with during those particular seasons. Different seasons bring different temptations. John Bunyan, in his classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, gives an accurate portrayal of this. We see Christian, the main character in the story, going through different seasons and being faced with different temptations. On his journey to the celestial city, we see him in the swamp of despond or despondency. We see him move on from there to the hill difficulty. We see him move on to the valley of humiliation. We see him encounter the attacks and the assaults of Apollyon. We see him meet the encouragement of guys like Faithful and Hopeful. We see him then taken captive by giant despair in Doubting Castle. We see him come through that into the delectable mountains. We see him in the enchanted ground. We see him in the country of Beulah where the air was sweet and pleasant. We see him at last at that daunting river that they had to cross in order to get to the city. Bunyan skillfully illustrates the truth that different seasons and different situations in life are accompanied by different dangers to our hearts. I don't know what season you're going through, but I guarantee you, you are going through some season right now, whether it's peace and prosperity, whether it seems like everything's going good, or whether it's a season of adversity when things just don't seem to be going well at all. You're plummeted again and again by wave after wave. Well, if we are to effectively guard and keep our hearts during these seasons, we need to be equipped with the wisdom of God and with the truth of the word of God. Last week, we had considered four seasons of life that require special diligence in keeping our hearts. We considered the reality that we are to keep our hearts, first of all, in seasons of peace and prosperity. Secondly, in seasons of busyness and chaos. Thirdly, in seasons of discord and division. Fourthly, in seasons of doubt and spiritual darkness. And if you weren't here last week or you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. Well, this morning, we're going to be considering three more seasons of life that demand our diligence in keeping and guarding our hearts. And so let's dive in. Number one, we are to guard our hearts with all diligence in seasons of uncertainty and confusion. Seasons of uncertainty and confusion. Now, I know that you might be thinking something right now because it's true that in a sense, We live in a constant state of uncertainty. As James, the brother of Jesus, said, we do not know what tomorrow will bring. We don't even know what will happen in the next hour from now. But this isn't what I mean by seasons of uncertainty and confusion. I'm referring to those seasons and situations in life when our sense of normalcy is threatened. I do believe that there should be a sense of normalcy to our lives, by the way. 
we should expect to see the sun rise in the morning. We should expect to fulfill our daily callings in life, whether you're in the public workforce, whether you're in school, whether you are a stay-at-home mother, or perhaps you're retired. You wake up, you get ready, you fulfill your calling, and then you do it all over again the next day. That's what I mean by a sense of normalcy, a sense of routine. I would argue that God has designed the world to operate with a sense of routine and repetition. You remember that according to the covenant that God made in the days of Noah, just after the flood, quote, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. There's a sense of repetition and order in God's creation. And we live within the context and within the framework of that order. And so, of course, there should be a sense of normalcy to our lives. However, there are times when our sense of normalcy is threatened by circumstances that are entirely out of our control. For example, when nuclear war is a real possibility and World War III may be just around the corner. When our economy is at risk of collapsing and throwing us into another Great Depression. When inflation is making it harder and harder to get by. When a government is making decisions that threaten the well-being of your family and your children and their grandchildren. When a global pandemic or a plandemic, depending on where you stand, occurs every so often. When unsettling and frightening conspiracy theories abound, and then some of them, after time, actually turn out to be true. Or instead of seasons of national uncertainty or global confusion, we experience personal seasons of uncertainty and confusion. When you're waiting to see how a family crisis will turn out, when you're waiting for the results from the doctor's office, when it looks like you might be losing your means of income, when you're in what, season, what seems to be a, a, a season of lose-lose situation and you don't know what to do, but you know you need to make a decision and you, you feel like no matter what you do, it's, it's going to collapse. It's a lose-lose situation. Whatever the situation or the circumstance, the reality is that all of us go through seasons of uncertainty and confusion Either, be, either because of big things that are happening in the world or big things that are happening in our world. And we need to know how to guard and manage our hearts during these seasons. And I will say that the first danger that threatens our heart in seasons like this is that of being overcome with fear and anxiety. That's the first thing that threatens our heart is being overwhelmed and overcome by fear and anxiety. As we watch the news, as we read the headlines, as we just participated in an election, as we see the world in a state of unrest, it's so easy for the heart to begin to ask the questions Will I have enough to eat? Will my family have enough? Will I be able to provide for my family? 
If World War III begins, will we be okay? If the economy crashes to the point of another Great Depression, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? If I lose my job because of my convictions, will I be able to provide? What do we do? Do we begin to stock up on guns and ammunition in order to protect ourselves and our families from looters and from people going crazy? Do we stock up on rice and canned goods? Do we build a bunker? Do I start trading my money in for gold? These are all things that we have all thought about at one time or another. We could go on and on with different scenarios and examples, but the truth is, this is what our hearts do. They are prone to become fearful and they are prone to become fretful, which is why we need to remember God's commands to not be fearful and to not be fretful. By all means, brothers and sisters, prepare for the worst. I think there's wisdom in that. Hope for the best. I think there's biblical grounds for that. But in everything, let your heart remain close to your God in prayer. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4, towards the end of the New Testament. Philippians chapter 4. A way for you to get there. Writing from prison, the Apostle Paul commanded the believers in Philippi something that is timelessly relevant even for us today in light of all the aforementioned dangers in the world. He said, beginning in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And notice the result. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want you to note the four imperatives or charges or commands that Paul lays down in that passage. Number one, it's there in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. That means be glad in him. Rejoice in him. Let your heart well up with joy in him. That, by the way, is a command. God commands us to rejoice and to be glad in him. I often think of Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's a command. Delight yourself in In the Lord. We often feel this tension in the Christian life. Well, do I delight in God or do I focus on obeying God? Well, this is a command. So to delight yourself in the Lord is obedience. Delight yourself in the Lord. 
Some of you might say, well, how can God command my affections? How can God direct and command certain affections? Aren't affections natural? Aren't they uncontrollable? Aren't my affections the natural response to outward circumstances? There's two answers to that. The first one is, they can be. The second answer is, they shouldn't always be. They shouldn't always be the natural response to your circumstances. Affections in God's plan are to be the supernatural responses to certain situations. The truth is that regardless of what we are going through and regardless of the real dangers that face our world today, God is so transcendently great and glorious that there is always reason to rejoice and be glad in him, regardless of what we are going through. God was God, eternally glorious, abounding and overwhelming, eternal joy before Genesis 1-1. Before Genesis 3 and the fall and the entrance of sin and death, God was God, the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father delighting in infinite joy in His Father. And the Father looking at the Son and seeing the radiance of His own glory, the exact imprint of His nature in the Son before any of us came into existence. There's always reason to be joyful and to be glad in him. Regardless of what's happening in the world, we can bless the Lord with a glad and joyful heart as we remember all his benefits to us. As Psalm 103 says, he has forgiven us all our iniquity. He heals all our diseases, those of the soul now and those of the body later. He redeems our lives from the pit. He crowns us. He crowns us. Unworthy, undeserving sinners, He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies us with good so that our youth or our youthfulness, our childlike faith is renewed like the eagle. So that no matter how old you are, your inward, childlike, godly youthfulness is renewed. He does all that. And did you know that there are, there is a biblical connection between delighting in God and also having all that we need in this world? Listen to Psalm 34, beginning in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Now listen, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That is a promise. And this is the command. Taste and see that the Lord is good, eternally good, unchangeably good, immutably good, infinitely good. And as you do that, as you taste and see that he is good, as you take refuge in him, as you fear him, as you seek him, as the soul's delight and infinitely glorious treasure, God says, you'll lack no good thing. You might lack things, but you won't lack any good thing. 
and that's good by his definition. The second imperative that we find in Philippians 4 is there in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That is, let your gentle, considerate spirit be known to everyone. This refers to an attitude that seeks what is best for everyone and not just for oneself. In other words, this is a call to Christ's likeness. And notice the reason given at the end of verse 5. Why should we seek to become more like Christ? Because the Lord is at hand. He's near. He is at hand. He is with us. What I think he's referring to is that he will return to reward his people. The third imperative or charge that Paul gives us is there in verse 6, Philippians 4, 6. Notice, do not be anxious about anything. What a command. That seems like an impossible command to obey. Do not be anxious about anything. This denotes, by the way, an anxiety that is incompatible with trust in God. The type of worry and the type of anxiety that consumes you and drains you of joy and gladness and trust in God. God commands us not to worry about our lives. You remember Jesus said, for this reason, I say to you, for what reason, Jesus? He says, as you store up treasures in heaven and are focused on being rich toward God, do not be worried about your life. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Jesus says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus himself said within the context of being rich toward God, glorifying God by enjoying God. <sighs> Bearing spiritual fruit by the power of God, he says, don't worry about your life. Seek first, first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Henry Scudder differentiates between lawful care and lawful worry on the one hand and then sinful care and sinful worry on the other because I think scripture says that there are types of worry that we should be given to. Paul talked about an anxiety that he had for all the churches a care and concern that he had, a jealousy that he had for the churches that they not turn away from Christ. He even said in 2 Corinthians 11, I fear that I who betrothed you to Christ, that you would be led astray in your thoughts from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul had a healthy fear, a healthy anxiety. Scudder writes, lawful care or lawful worry is an act of wisdom. Whereby after that, a person has rightly judged what he ought to do, what not, what good he is to pursue, and what evil is to be shunned by him or removed. That's the good kind of lawful care, lawful worry. He says sinful care is an act of fear and distrust, exercising not only the head, but chiefly the heart to the disquietude and disturbance of the heart causing a person inordinately and anxiously to pursue his desires, perplexing himself with doubtful and fearful thoughts about success. So there's 
the sinful kind of worry, that we take matters into our own hands and we begin to take a Hagar to ourselves and not trust in God. And then we bear the fruit of wickedness for a long time. Well, fourth, the fourth imperative, the fourth charge that Paul gives these believers in Philippi is there at the end of verse six. He goes, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. How? By prayer and petition or supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Do you notice here? This is not just a call to pray. This is not just a call to lay your petitions and your requests before God. He says to do it with thanksgiving. You see, the thanksgiving aspect of prayer acknowledges that God is in control and he gives good gifts to his children. And therefore, we pray with a thankful heart. We don't pray with a fretful, worried heart. We pray with a thankful heart. We can even thank him that he will answer prayer according to his will. Jesus said in the context of asking and seeking and knocking in prayer, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, and I will say how much infinitely more will the father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? That's the confidence that he gives us in God. And the Apostle John must have picked up on that because later on in his first epistle, he says this, and this is the confidence which we have before God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So there's that confidence in God, which should cause our hearts to pray with thanksgiving, thanking him even in our prayers, before our prayers are answered, that he will answer them according to his perfectly wise, sovereign will. So there's wisdom in preparing. There's wisdom in having food. Go to the ant, sluggard. Notice how the ant stores up food for later on. There's there's wisdom in that. There's wisdom in, in, in seeking to protect your family and provide for your family, but you're to do all of that within the context of a heart that is thankful, a heart that is glad, a heart that is joyful in God. He knows how to care for his people. He knows how to care for his people in famine, when times are tough. He knows how to care for his people in times of war. We talked about it last week, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a season for everything, a season for war and a season for peace. And yet God is over all of these seasons still the satisfier and provider and protector of his people. He knows how to care for his people. He knows how to keep them satisfied in himself. Well, secondly, there's not just the danger of being overcome with fear and anxiety, but there's the danger of forgetting that God is in control. There's the danger of the heart forgetting that God is in control, that God is on the throne. And it's a throne that unlike those deists that basically believe that God created all things and then just turned away from all things and has nothing to do, washed his hands clean from everything. No, the God of the Bible created all things and is actively involved in all things. 
The fact that we can pray and are commanded not to worry or be fearful and fretful is one side of the same coin. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this before. The fact that Jesus tells us to pray and to not worry, to not be fearful, to not be fretful. The other side of that same coin is that God is in absolute control of everything. Why would we pray to a God who's not in control? Why would we pray and pour out our hearts and our cares before a God who has no control of anything? Prayer, biblically prescribed prayer, necessitates a sovereign God. I quoted last week from one modern day affirmation of faith, which says, God upholds and governs all things from galaxies to subatomic particles from the forces of nature to the movements of nations and from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself, yet in such a way that he never sins nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, but our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That's a God who has control. He does everything he pleases. You want to know how you're not in control? You can't do everything you please. You can't. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. You don't have the control. You don't have the sovereignty. You don't have that power. But him, he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. And it's so easy in times of uncertainty and confusion to forget that God is sovereign, to forget that God's sovereignty is purposeful. John Piper, in his new book, Providence, defines providence as purposeful sovereignty. His sovereignty has a purpose. It's a purpose to glorify himself while simultaneously satisfying the deepest longings of his people. His control is such that even when people commit evil, he is able to use that evil and turn it and use that evil for the good of his people. Remember the very last chapter of Genesis? After Joseph is traded in by his brothers, deserted by his brothers, sold by his brothers, abandoned by his brothers, left for dead by his brothers. People find him, take him, sell him to Egypt. He becomes a slave. He eventually elevates and works himself. Well, God does it, but does, you know, brings him all the way up to the second man, most powerful in Egypt. And when his brothers and Joseph reunite at the end, Joseph says, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good how we define the it makes all the difference in the world you meant evil against me but God meant that evil for good in order to do what has happened on this day to keep many people alive 
That was just a small glimpse of what would happen thousands of years later in the land of Israel. When God in the flesh, who has walked at that time on this earth for 33 years, who has spent the last three years healing, commanding demons to leave people, teaching about the kingdom of God, raising up, pouring his time into 12 men, 11 men that would turn the world upside down. At the end of all that, one of those disciples in the garden with an army behind him, approaches him, kisses him, and betrays him, sells him for 30 pieces of silver. Wicked act. Devious act. He is taken. He is arrested. He is falsely tried. He is falsely condemned to death. The next morning, he is flogged. He is crucified. He is mocked. He is spit upon. This is God in the flesh becoming the lowest of the low. At last, the one who breathed into man the breath of life now gives up his last breath on that cross. And he's laid in a grave, laid in a tomb. Three days later, God raises him in victorious triumph over death. And here's how the church, the early church, interpreted those events in Acts chapter 4. They lifted up their voices together to God in prayer and said, Sovereign Lord, good way to begin your prayers. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And notice their interpretation, their spirit-wrought interpretation of the events. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Everything Judas did, everything Herod did, everything wicked Annas and Caiaphas did, everything Pontius Pilate did, everything the Romans did in mocking Jesus, beating on his head a crown of thorns and clothing him with a robe of purple, everything that happened to him that day, from the spit to the mockery, everything was according to what God's hand and what God's plan had predestined to take place. And yet they were fully accountable for their evil. And yet God remained fully sovereign over all the events so as to use that ultimate act of evil for the greatest good of the redemption of a people that cannot be numbered before the throne of God. The greatest good had come out of the greatest evil because God is in control. There was a man in the Old Testament who was deeply humbled from his high pride. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And we read this about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He says, but at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes toward heaven and my knowledge and understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. Why? For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. 
and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth. And listen, no one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? Our God is sovereign. He is in control and his control has his best in mind for his people. His control has his people's best in mind. Romans 8, 28. We should never get tired of hearing it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. All things, all things. It doesn't say some things. It doesn't say most things. God is sovereign in such a way that he will make everything the believer experiences work for the believer's infinitely glorious good. Secondly, we're not just to guard our hearts in seasons of uncertainty and confusion. We are to guard our hearts in seasons of rejection and loneliness. Seasons of rejection and loneliness. Perhaps you have been rejected at work. Perhaps something you produced, something you made, something you offered was rejected. Perhaps You've experienced rejection from your spouse in some form or fashion, rejection from your friends, rejection from your family, and now you're single. Let's say you're, you're waiting for marriage, you're, you're a widow, you've lost your spouse, you're alone for whatever reason. We all go through seasons of rejection and seasons of loneliness. And in those seasons, we have to ask, what are the dangers of the heart in those seasons. I'm only going to name one. I'm not, I'm not going to be exhaustive, but I will say there's one supreme danger that faces your heart in seasons of loneliness and in seasons of rejection. And I'm only going to say this one because of how common it is and how powerful it is. It's the danger of the heart sinking into self-pity that leads you to self Medicating. A self pity that says, I must take my healing into my own hands. I must take my rejection into my hands. I must take my loneliness into my hands. God hasn't done anything. God hasn't acted on my behalf. I will take things into my hands and I will self medicate. And there's a number of things the heart does to self-medicate. I'll list five of them. Number one, in seasons of loneliness, in seasons of rejection, the heart is prone to self-medicate, number one, with heart-distracting activities. To just get your mind off things. To get your mind off what has happened to you, what you're going through. Heart-distracting activities. You know what those are in your life. I know what those are. Number two, the heart will seek to self-medicate with mind-numbing substances. Alcohol is a go-to for many, many people in the world today because it numbs the mind from the 
feelings of loneliness and rejection. It has a way of just settling issues. And yet in the morning, those issues are right there in front of your face all over again. It's a temporary way of self-medicating. It isn't a lasting solution. It's a temporary solution. It isn't the only substance that people use, by the way, to to numb their minds in seasons of loneliness or rejection. Number three, the heart will be tempted to self-medicate with flesh-gratifying passions. The heart is wounded and it's lonely and it's been stricken. And so it seems like all pleasure is forgotten. It's lost, at least the good pleasures that we experience in God. And so the heart will settle for the flesh-gratifying pleasures that the world offers us. We must be on guard. Fourthly, the heart will be tempted in seasons of rejection and loneliness to self-medicate with eye-enrapturing spectacles. A spectacle is anything that you fix your eye on for any period of time that distracts you, that keeps you entertained, that keeps you thinking about something other than what you're going through. We look at social media and most of you are familiar with the scroll of death. That endless scroll of the next picture, the next reel, the next video, the next image, the next this, the next that. It's constant. It's constant. Most of the world should be buff in this arm if you're right-handed because of how much of this is going on every day. This, what, what, what is that? There's a place for social media. There's a place to interact with people. There's a place to post things to the glory of God for the good of his people. But that's not what people use most social media for. They use it as a way of self-medicating, distracting their minds, enrapturing their eyes with two-second spectacles, five-second spectacles, and then moving on to the next because the eye, as the proverb said, is never satisfied. Lastly, in seasons like this, the heart will be tempted to self-medicate with pride-fostering conversations and activities, right? The heart's been rejected. The heart's been cast away. The heart's feeling lonely. The heart's feeling isolated. And so what does the heart do? Self-medicate by fostering pride, by flattering itself, by convincing itself that it's greater than it really is, that the individual is loftier than the person really is. And so they go to people that they know are going to flatter them. And so they surround themselves with such people because they're going to tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. But friends, what you need in moments like that is not a friend that's going to tell you what you want to hear, but a true friend that's going to tell you what you need to hear. How do we guard our hearts against self-pity? By self-pity, I mean feeling sorry for yourself, throwing a pity party for yourself. How do we guard our hearts from that? And then how do we guard our hearts from proceeding to the next step of self-medicating with either heart-distracting activities, mind-numbing substances, flesh-gratifying pleasures, eye-enrapturing spectacles, or pride-fostering conversations? What do we do? Number one, we are to remember that whatever rejection we experience in this world as believers, it is nothing compared 
to the rejection our Savior experienced for us and for our salvation. Whatever loneliness we think we're experiencing, and we do experience, whatever rejection we experience, it is nothing compared to the rejection that Christ our Savior experienced for our eternal good. He was despised and rejected by men. Now let's break that men down. What men? The, the nation that should have received him? The rulers of the earth that should have bowed down to him? Pilate? Herod? Third bracket? Rejected by men? What other men? The men closest to him. The men he poured out his life and time to for the past three and a half years. Where were they when he was arrested? It says they all fled away from him. He was rejected. But perhaps the greatest rejection, isolation, abandonment that he experienced in his soul that day upon the cross was when he cried out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understood that he, in that moment, became sin for us. And the Father deserted him in the sense that he poured out his fury upon him. There was no other way to reconcile us to himself but that the Son become the substitute to suffer and die and experience that banishment of soul in our place. He was abandoned. And yet he never once lost his trust in his father. Otherwise, sin would have been introduced into the equation and the entire plan or scheme of redemption would have unraveled in that act of mistrust in our Lord. Yet the whole time, for the joy that was set before him, we read, he endured the cross. Even in that moment of deepest desertion, abandonment, rejection, and loneliness. Secondly, this is not a brilliantly thought out one, but it's so true. We are to remember that life is not about us. Life is not about you. Life is not about me. My life is not about me. It takes the miracle of regeneration to instill that in a person. You, no one can, we, we are born self-gratifying creatures. We are born self-centered individuals. For us to be able to freely lift up our hands and say, my life is not about me. It takes the miracle of the new birth to get us there. Thank God for regeneration. But even in those moments of deep darkness and loneliness, it takes grace from God by the Holy Spirit to humble us and bring us to the position where we realize no matter what I'm going through, my life isn't about me. The world isn't about me. The streets out there, the mountains, the trees, the grass, that's not about me. And that's liberating. That's freeing to us. When we realize that it's not about you. The world exists, as Calvin said, to be a theater where God displays his glory in all the intricacies and complexities of this 
orderly creation. And I just happen to be a speck in all of that theater. That helps us to fight self-pity and self-medicating. Life is not about us. Life is about God. Glorifying God by enjoying Him forever. I find that it's so easy, and you can testify the same thing, it is so easy to get so self-absorbed into what you're going through that you forget the most critical aspect of reality, that it's all about Him. Him being glorified. Him bringing a people to Himself. Him eternally existing as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Him not needing us, but creating us in order to bring us into the joy that he has for all eternity. Thirdly, we are to remember in seasons like this that though we feel alone at times, we are objectively not alone. Subjectively, we might feel alone, but we know based on the objective truth of the word of God, we are not alone. We are not alone. God is with us. Jesus, he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that does not just mean God with us 2,000 years ago, walking in the flesh. That means God with us now by means of his spirit who came to us as a result of the finished work of Emmanuel, God with us. Thirdly, and lastly, we are to guard our hearts as the people of God in seasons of suffering and tribulation. In seasons of suffering and tribulation. Tribulation in the original language denotes a kind of pressure that is put upon an individual. Tribulation means pressure caused by either outward circumstances or inward disturbances. It's a pressure put upon you, a pressure to be this, a pressure to do that, a pressure to, to go a certain way. That's what suffering does, is it presses us, it tests us, it, it weighs down upon us. And there's all kinds of different types of suffering. Suffering that can happen through the wickedness of this world, suffering that could happen because of cancer and disease and bodily issues. And in all of these situations, what are our hearts most prone to in seasons of suffering and seasons of tribulation? Pressure. Number one, I think all of you can testify, harboring bitter thoughts and hard thoughts and evil thoughts toward God. That's exactly what Job's wife, that's what welled up in her as she sees her husband going through all this. And we have to remember, it wasn't just Job that was going through this. We have Job's story, but she was in the thick of it all. She had lost everything Job lost. They were one flesh. She had lost her children as well. And what does she say in Job 2? She sees Job maintaining his integrity and she says, curse God and die already. Curse God 
and die already is what she says. And be careful lest you judge her because how many times have you been tempted to curse God in your suffering? To call him unfair and unjust? All of us have been there. To think thoughts like, well, God doesn't care about me. Even though he calls us to cast all our cares upon him because he does care for us. And yet we turn our back on the objective truth because of our subjective experience and we say, nah, he doesn't care about me. He cares about other people, but he doesn't care about me. Another thought that wells up is that, well, God, he isn't there. Let me tell you something. If you're in Christ, if you have been granted a new heart and God has brought you into this new and everlasting covenant, God can't not be there with you. According to his own righteousness and justice, he can't not be with you. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, the new covenant guarantees this. Listen to Jeremiah 32, 37. Jeremiah 32, I want you to turn there and see this with me. Jeremiah chapter 32. I want you to understand where I'm coming from when I say that God can't not be with you as a child of God. In Jeremiah chapter 32, the very end, towards the end, he says this. Look at verse 38. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them. And here it is, the promise of the new covenant. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. I will be with them as their God, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And we read about how this new covenant was not just made with, as Jeremiah 31 says, Judah and the house of Israel was made with all people from all nations, his elect who are amongst all kinds of people groups, the Gentiles. He has brought us into his covenant. He can't not be with us. And here's why I say he can't not, because he sealed that covenant in the blood of his own son. For God to abandon his people would be for God to break his covenant and for God to turn his back on that infinitely precious blood that was poured out as a blood that ratified and inaugurated the new covenant. He can't not be with you. It's sealed in the blood of his son. He says in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Never and ever is the words he uses there. Psalm 46 says, The God of Jacob is with us, the Lord of hosts is with us. Another thing that you can think in times of suffering is, okay, uh, if God's with me then, he's against me. 
All right, he's with me, but he's against me. He's brought me out here into the wilderness to kill me. That's what the people said when God brought them out of Egypt. He's brought us out here to kill us. Biblically, the answer is no. God, even in your suffering, is preparing you for glory, and you do not understand that now. But the word is given to you so that you might understand that, that you might repent of godly or ungodly attitudes that say God doesn't care, God's not with me, or God is against me as his child. There's another danger in seasons like this, and it's the danger when we're suffering and when we're going through tribulations, the danger of the heart becoming envious and covetous of other people who are not going through what you're going through. You remember that Peter, towards the end of the Gospel of John, was told by Jesus how he would suffer and how he would die. John says by this, Jesus was telling him the kind of death he would glorify God by. And Peter, in light of that coming suffering, that coming death, he looks at John and he tells the Lord, what about him? Right? What about John? And Jesus says, if I desire that he remains until my coming, what is that to you? You follow me. That's what he says to Peter, and that's what he says to us. And therefore, in seasons of suffering, the worst thing we can do is, number one, harboring evil thoughts toward God, but number two, giving in to covetousness and jealousy regarding what other people are not going through in light of what you are going through. Is to put your eyes on other people. That is just a place of, that's just a massive recipe for disappointment and digging yourself in a deeper, deeper, darker hole is by looking at other people, comparing yourself to people. That's one of the dangers on social media is that you begin to live vicariously through other people. Well, that person's always posting happy pictures of them and their family. That, that person always seems to be happy. Do you realize that most people just put the best of themselves on social media? They don't show you all the trials and tribulations. They aren't transparent with everything they're going through. Thirdly, there's another danger for the heart, and that is the danger of letting the heart overflow with these thoughts into the mouth so that the mouth brings other people down in light of your suffering. Bringing others down with your attitude and your words. It's so easy to do that when we're going through legitimately hard times to not guard the heart. And what happens? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks is what Jesus taught us. And so failing to guard the heart will overflow into the mouth and into the words and onto other people. And you can easily bring other people down by a failure to guard your heart in your season of suffering. Instead of quietly burying what God has given you to endure for that season, knowing that it's for your good, he's with you, he's not against you, and he's preparing you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison through this suffering. Leave it at that. It's better to not speak sometimes. It's better to not open the mouth sometimes because of how easy it is to bring other people, the closest to us sometimes, down because of our failure to guard our hearts. Fourthly, 
there's the danger of assuming that our suffering is due to the fact that we've done something wrong. The heart is prone to do this as well. Things happen. The doctor's results aren't the best. It's looking grim. It's looking gloomy. You lost your job. Whatever it, ha- whatever, whatever it is, whatever is the cause or the source of the suffering, the heart can easily begin to look at itself and say, what have you done wrong in the eyes of God? What are you doing wrong? It is very, very premature. It's a mark of immaturity to automatically think that because things are going wrong in your life, it's because you're in sin before God. Have you read the 42 chapters of Job? He was the most upright man in all the earth. He was the most godly man of his time that we read about. And yet none of his calamity was owing to anything in him, but that God might show himself to be the exceeding glorious treasure of the soul so as to, even in the midst of satanic attack, still sustain Job and still show that his worth is worth pursuing even in our suffering. It's not always because you're doing something wrong. Be careful of your heart going that way. And fifthly and lastly, what is the danger of the heart in seasons of suffering and and tribulation? The heart is in danger of losing your eternal perspective of reality. Losing your eternal perspective Suffering has a way of focusing your lens in the here and now, in this, your own little bubble, what I'm going through, what I'm going to be going through, what others don't see that I'm going through, and yet losing the eternal perspective that this is not the end of reality. The Bible doesn't end with your trial. The Bible doesn't end with your suffering. The Bible does not end with your cancer. The Bible does not end with the loss of your job, the loss of your spouse. The Bible does not end with the loss of a child. The Bible does not end with anything but God living happily ever after with his redeemed people. That's how the story ends. And God right now, we are told, is preparing us for that time through our various sufferings and through our trials. This is not how the story ends. And so we are to guard our hearts. We are to remember first and foremost First Peter 5, 9. We are to know that the same experiences of suffering are being accustomed, accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. The same kinds of suffering are experienced by our brotherhood around the world. So when we think that we're alone in our suffering and no one else knows what we're going through, that is so premature. It's so immature. Have you thought of our brothers and sisters in North Korea today? Have you thought of our brothers and sisters in China? Have you thought of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Russia, Ukraine? Have you thought about them in any of your sufferings or any of your trials? We should. We should remember our brotherhood throughout the world. And we are to remember, secondly, that God's purposes and promises are as sure and faithful as ever regarding suffering. We are to remember God's purposes and promises regarding suffering. What are those purposes? 
Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 7, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes here. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we were pleased to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be shaken by these afflictions. Sorry, I'm reading from. <laughs> I'm reading from another passage. We'll get there in a moment. Second Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Thought I had the Book of Mormon up here or something. Another, another, another gospel, another word. No, we'll get there. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, the apostle says, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's Paul's way of saying, Life isn't about me. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And now listen to this. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So Paul is underscoring what his mind is on even as he's being crushed, even as he's perplexed, even as he's afflicted in every way. What is his focus? The glory of God and more people coming to faith. Verse 16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now listen to this promise. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Here's that eternal perspective that we're talking about. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen, unseen, are eternal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, that we are destined for afflictions. Acts 14, 22. Here's how the disciples, here's how the apostles encouraged these new Christians. Through many afflictions, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's supposed to be an encouragement. Through many afflictions, we must enter the kingdom of God. We read in Romans chapter 8 that 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And listen to this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Notice the one common denominator in all of these passages on suffering. The glory of God, the glory that we will, re- will be revealed to us, the glory that he's preparing for us. Life is not about us. It's about the glory of God. And if God sees fit to prepare us for these glories by tribulation and suffering, we, like Job, are to say, blessed be the name of the Lord He gives and he takes away. Even if you slay me, yet my soul will trust in you. That's not the natural response, but it is the supernatural response that the Spirit can produce in us. Finally, if we were to keep and guard our hearts in these three seasons that we've talked about today, Seasons of uncertainty and chaos, seasons of rejection and loneliness, and seasons of suffering and tribulation. We are to imitate our brothers and sisters in the letter to the Hebrews. And so I would point you now to this letter to the Hebrews as we conclude this morning. It's interesting because as we consider the letter to the Hebrews, they experienced everything we have been talking about this morning. Uncertainty and confusion. Why is it, they would say, we were having our goods plundered, our houses taken away. Why are we being rejected? Why are, being, why are we lonely Why are we suffering? Why are we going through these tribulations? Everything we have talked about, the three seasons we've talked about this morning, are the three seasons the Hebrews were in when this writer addressed them. And so we are to ask the question, okay, in light of everything we've talked about this morning and everything the Hebrews were going through, these brothers and sisters in the letter to the Hebrews, how do we keep our hearts? How do we guard our hearts? Number one, We must keep our eyes and fix our hearts on Christ as all-glorious without us. I'll say that again. We are to fix our eyes and keep our hearts focused on Christ as the all-glorious Son of God without us and apart from us. Look at chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. The writer knows as he's being led by the Spirit, he knows that these believers are in a season of uncertainty and confusion. He knows they're in a season of rejection and loneliness. And he knows they're in a season of suffering and tribulation. And what does he fix the minds of his readers on in the very first chapter? Christ, the all-glorious Son of God, who existed long before us. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he, God, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Or of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is eternal forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, speaking of Christ, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Do you see what he does in this very opening chapter? There's no charges to us. There's no charges to the believers in that day. It's just Christ as the all-glorious Son of God apart from us. Even when it talks about him making purification for sins, he doesn't say our sins. It's as though he isn't even bringing us into the equation until chapter 2. There's a reason for that. This is, fix your eyes on this Christ who is all-glorious and all-beautiful and all-satisfying apart from you and apart from anything you're going through. Hebrews, he is all-glorious apart from us. And so in all of these seasons that we are talking about today, we are to fix our minds and our hearts on this Christ who is all and eternally glorious even without us. Second point of the writer to the Hebrews is that we are to keep and fix our eyes on Christ as the one who has gone before us. Turn with me to chapter six quickly. We're going to end in Hebrews, by the way. So Hebrews chapter six, Hebrews chapter six, beginning in verse 17. It says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He has gone before us. So number one, let's fix our eyes and our minds on him as the all-glorious Christ who is eternally satisfying even without us in the equation. 
But secondly, we are to fix our minds on him as the one who has gone as a forerunner for us and before us. Quickly turn to chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to see how he has gone before us. Verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does a divinely inspired writer of the word of the living God tell people who are in a season of uncertainty and confusion, rejection, loneliness, suffering, and tribulation? He reminds them that Christ has gone before them through the cross, up to the throne of Almighty God on their behalf. For them, for their sin, as their high priest. And now, thirdly, we are to keep our eyes and our hearts fixed upon Christ, who, thirdly, ever lives to plead for us. And for this, I point you to chapter 7. In verse 25, Hebrews 7, verse 25. Listen to what the writer says to these suffering, lonely, afflicted, confused believers. He says, consequently, he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. We are to fix our eyes on him, not only as eternally glorious without us, not only as etor- eternally <laughs> or victoriously glorious in his accomplishments and going before us, but we are to fix our minds thirdly on him as the one who ever lives to plead and pray for his people. He intercedes for us even in our loneliness, even in our suffering, even in our tribulation, even in our times of uncertainty and fear and confusion. And fourthly, We are to fix our eyes and our minds on him as one who is coming back for us. Look at chapter 9, the very end. Chapter 9 of Hebrews, look at verse 27. It says here, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you see what the writer does to these believers who are experiencing in one degree or another, in one form or another, in one way or another, all 
the dangers that we have been talking about this morning. He points them to Christ, eternally glorious even apart from us, victoriously triumphant for us, always interceding on behalf of us, and one day coming for us. Those four elements. He fixes our minds on Christ. He is the answer to every season we go through. There is enough in him to heal us from anything we are going through. There is enough grace in him to overflow and abound abound to every one of your trials and every one of your tribulations and every one of your seasons of uncertainty and confusion. There is enough in Christ to raise the soul and for the heart to be glad and to rejoice again. Rejoice in the living God. Christ will return and he will usher us into this new heaven and a new earth. And in that day, the first earth will pass away. No longer will there be any sea and and, and we will see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. We will hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And verse 5 of Revelation chapter 21 says, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. So that in that day, all our seasons of uncertainty, confusion, suffering, tribulation, All our seasons of rejection and loneliness will be done away with. Everything will be made new. And we will know in that day that everything we had gone through in our earthly pilgrimage was preparatory. I can't explain that now, but I know God and you know God and you know his word that in that day, everything will make perfect sense. He was preparing us for an eternal wait of glory beyond all comparison and he did it through Christ and so let us in whatever season we are going through fix our eyes and our hearts upon him